Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 78. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're discussing the end of apologetics with Dr. Myron Bradley Penner. Dr. Penner is rector at the Anglican Parish of St. Paul in the Anglican Diocese of Edmonton, Alberta, and is the author of the book that we're excited to talk about today, The End of Apologetics, Christian Witness in a Postmodern Context, published by Baker. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Dr. Josh Carroll, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Amber and and Josh, this is the first episode in the series on apologetics that we're going to be doing this summer. How does Dr. Penner sort of kick us off? I really like how Dr. Penner calls out issues that are going on with modern apologetics and how we view that and offers ways forward that have to do with relationships and community and actually ethical practice that isn't just based on what you know, it's based on uh, experiencing your faith. One thing that I like about Dr. Penner's book is um, he, he talks about doing apologetics in a postmodern context and doing a kind of postmodern apologetics. And for some listeners that might raise hackles of what does it mean to do postmodern apologetics? Does that mean we don't believe in absolute truth and those sorts of things? And he explains that postmodernity, instead of being a particular ideology that ascribes to certain things, like the lack of absolute truth, for example, postmodernity is actually more of a self-reflexive awareness of the fact that we are moderns. And it's a way of looking at the modern framework and seeing it as contingent and simply questioning it. And so Penner shows how we do apologetics in ways that question maybe the modern conceptions of rationality and look to pre-modern and even more uh, biblically rooted ideas of what belief and trust mean and how those things are are deeply communal and how they involve our lived experiences, not just our heads. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Penner. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Penner. Well, it's great to have you guys have me on and uh, to see your faces and get to know who you are. Yeah. So how about we begin by hearing a little bit about what you see as kind of the landscape of apologetics and what are you really calling for an end of in light of the title of your book, The End of Apologetics? Yeah, the landscape of apologetics. Um <clears throat> Uh, of course, the the simple version of of or definition of apologetics is a rational defense of the faith. Um, but I think we have to think very carefully about what we mean by rational in that in that uh, in, in that little definition there, uh, because really what I see going on almost across the board, and of course we have to distinguish between sort of more uh, academic apologetics and then the lay kind of apologetics where uh, it sort of becomes this almost smoke and mirrors game that goes on where we just try to simply line up arguments that reinforce 
uh, a prior assumption that we have and make it look like our position is the right one. Um, that's not really, I'm not very interested in that kind of stuff, but I'm much more interested in the more academic, uh, apologetic enterprise, which is trying to basically uh, lay out the rational foundations for Christian faith that can be attested to independent of any Christian witness. Like, I mean, any specifically Christian partisan witness. And so there are several people who are, you know, kind of big name apologists that take on all comers and want to defend Christian truth in a sort of neutral, objective, nonpartisan way and say this is the absolutely most rational thing to believe. And that's kind of, I guess, the thing that I'm aiming at. And in the book that uh, I wrote on that topic, I, I talk about the modern apologetic enterprise because that's really what I'm, I'm focused on. Uh, the kind of apologetics that we do after the Enlightenment and sort of because of the Enlightenment, which made a whole set of assumptions. And uh, I, I really like how Charles Taylor, uh, the Canadian philosopher, kind of lays out what happens. And he talks about being embedded in a, in a modern social imaginary, um, which I think really captures uh, what happens to us because of the Enlightenment, is that, that we, we become sort of ensconced in this way of imagining the world and social relationships. And it's the apologetics that sort of takes that as its, its uh, I guess, base starting point that I'm focused on. You give a great acronym in your book, OUNCE, <laughs> to describe <laughs> um, what exactly that position is in, in modernity and, and how that has created a certain criteria of what we take to be truth or what we take to be justifiability or those sorts of things. And then we cater our apologetics enterprise to, to achieving those things. So could you explain a little bit what, what is ounce? What does that stand for? What does that mean? Yeah. Um, ounce is, uh, I, I, I get asked about this all the time and I, I almost was embarrassed to put it in there. And initially I had, I had put it in there so that I didn't have to write out the whole thing every time. And then I just left it in. Um, it's objective, universal, and neutral. That's what ounce is standing for. Um, and that is a real rough and ready. It's not a really great, uh, exhaustive definition of how moderns understand reason. But that those are some key properties of what reason is. Because reason has to do a lot of work for us in the Enlightenment and after the Enlightenment. Um, because we're showing... Or, or leaving behind all of, basically all of the traditional sources of legitimacy, authority, authorization, and those kinds of things, and the processes by which we did that, and so um, reason has to take on new rights, so to speak, and so we start to discount anything that isn't something that is objective, universal, and neutral. Uh, we can also maybe equally start to talk about it in empirical terms um, because empirical science becomes sort of a replacement for reason as well. Um, but that's what I'm looking at with that little acronym there, OUTS, is that suddenly there's a shift to how we want to imagine reason. It, it has to do different things for us. Yeah, and the shift there is important, too, to recognize that this is not how we always defined reason or thought about it. It's very different from the way that Christians in the pre-modern world thought about reason. But this quest to achieve 
truth claims that are objective, meaning they, they have no subjectivity in them whatsoever. They're totally mind independent, person independent, uh, they're universal and they are neutral. In order to achieve those kinds of things and, and to import that concept of reason into Christianity, you talk about how we have to reduce Christianity to a series of propositions. We have to turn it into a kind of propositionalism that we can prove our objective, universal, and neutral. And then that way we can achieve, I think you quote William Lane Craig here, an epistemic standoff. We can win the epistemic standoff yeah. uh, with, with an, an unbeliever. And so it's a way of showing like, you know, my truth claims are more superior mm -hmm. to your truth claims. And so you need to say that I win and Christianity wins at the end of the day. And I'm wondering if you can reflect on what are the problems with that method aside from this whole question of okay the validity of these objective universal neutral propositions you know as far as an epistemic framework but but what's the what's the danger of approaching apologetics in that light yeah i mean i think first of all um it's a massive distortion of what kierkegaard would call the essentially christian um and i, I think i put it in this book, I use the comment, uh, or, or I, I somehow make the offhand comment about, you know, if this is true, then a computer can be a better Christian than most people, because they can hold the maximal, uh, you know, true number of propositions better than we can, because they don't get mired up in subjectivity and caught up with, uh, you know, doubting things, they just have uh, algorithms and formulae, and they just plug and play, right? Um, and so, I mean, that to me is probably the fundamental problem with it is it's a distortion of what the really Christian, what, what Christianity essentially is. And therefore, of course, it leads to a distorted and deformed form of Christianity. Um, and so one only gets, I guess, uh, genuine Christianity almost by accident or despite of, of the modern apologetics enterprise. Um, but there are some like also, I think just, simple philosophical, or maybe not simple, but straightforward philosophical problems with it. Um, this whole Enlightenment project itself is is dubious. And and then sort of philosophically, it, it is, for lack of a better, well, it, it's fundamentally secular, which means it sort of adopts this, this value-neutral standpoint that exists in Thomas Nagel's words in the the view from nowhere, which is not influenced by anything and anywhere, uh, which is just a mythical thing that we created in order to try to solve conflicts and disputes in modernity without having to acknowledge differing viewpoints. Um, and so it, it's, it's a mythical creature. Yeah, that's a really great point that you make in your book, kind of leaning on Charles Taylor. I think any contemporary Christian apologetic apologist would die if they heard, uh, you know, some, somebody say your entire paradigm is actually secular um, because they think they're pushing against secularism and standing up for the truth of Christianity. But insofar as it adopts a certain epistemic paradigm um, that is secular, it's, it's essentially arguing on the terms and assuming secularism um, in terms of how you know and how you argue and how you dialogue. Um, and what you can claim to be true. Um, I thought that was a really important per, per, part of your book, but you also talk about uh, leaning a little bit on Friedrich Nietzsche 
You also argue that it's nihilistic as well, which is another thing that they would die to hear. Um, so can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, and and Merrill Westfall does an excellent job in so many different places. I can't even reference exactly where to point you uh, of sort of drawing out uh, the the lineage of this death of God from Nietzsche through Heidegger, uh, or at least this critique uh, into Heidegger's concept of ontotheology. Um, but this the thing that Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, who are really the two earliest critics of modernity who get this, the thing that they understand is that if we go with the Enlightenment picture of the world, this reordering of the world, what Taylor is calling the modern social imaginary, we have banished God from our systems except on our own terms. So that, as Merrill Westfall will say, you know, God only enters into our systems of thought on our terms. And they come at, he comes in at the end to sort of to be the answer to everything, which is the answer that we've set up so that he has to come in and justify it. Um, and yeah, so what's interesting about, or, or maybe not interesting, but what, what's I think wrong about using the modern tools and the modern paradigm to try to justify Christianity is that in the end, it is basically saying that hearing from God isn't important. It's me setting things up in such a way that God now becomes necessary and he starts to depend on me, which is a real wrong polarity from a Christian understanding of how the God and human relationship is supposed to be, right? We, um, and that, that's why I advocate a shift from this more epistemic paradigm and focus on justifying Christian belief to a more hermeneutic one, which is more explicating and understanding Christian belief sort of drawing on Paul Ricoeur, who I think brilliantly says, like the first moment uh, in the Hebrew Christian tradition in understanding comes from listening and hearing. It doesn't come from asserting and, and figuring. Like the initiative has to be God's. God takes the initiative. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the, 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 the basic paradigm that is adopted in the Enlightenment and in modernity, is one that sees uh, God as someone who, well, let's just, it's sort of the, the Husserlian bracketing, right? You bracket God and, and keep him out of the discussion until the very end, and then he comes in and says, hey, look, there he is right there. Hmm. Um, and in the end, he, he's just showing that I really am the most rational being around and, and that the way I see the world is the right one. Hmm. What would you say to somebody who uh, may be listening and thinking, well, you know, when I argue for the existence of God, let's say, um, I'm drawing upon pre-modern arguments, like perhaps Anselm's ontological argument or Aquinas's version of the cosmological argument or something like that. Um, would you say that uh, it's just co-opted then in a sort of modernist key? Um, or um, how would you sort of uh, respond to somebody who might sort of uh, push back in that way? I would say get yourself to a monastery and spend the hours of your day praying the hours that they pray, and then you'll start to understand what they meant when they gave their arguments. Um, so yes, I'd say you've co-opted a set of terms and and symbols and languages that you've you've taken out of their original setting and put to work for purposes that they did not intend. Um, what's super clear, well. Anselm's the easiest because he's actually praying. 
he's having a conversation with God. There's nothing objective or neutral or universal about it. Um, he and even in the disputes that he's having, um, the, he's not talking to people who don't believe in God. He's not trying to prove that God exists apart from any assumptions. This is the God they're all praying to. Um, and so that's the context in which this makes any sense at all, or it doesn't make any sense at all. And with with Aquinas in in the Summa, um, he's already made the assumption that God is is the one good that is diffused throughout all creation. Um, and it becomes this actual, I think, the proper way to look at it is this act of worship uh, in which he is explicating the, the divine logic. Um, and he, he would not at all understand what you mean if you, you, you tried to take it and, and defend it against a secular cosmology or something like that. Yeah, which then makes sense when you get to Kant and Hegel, who really flip that on its head. And you have, you know, in the case of Kant, you have establishing these, this, um, yeah, the categorical imperative. You, you have this universality that's set up of reason, and then you allow religion to be within the bounds of the right. laws of reason that you have set up. So anything that breaks those rules of reason clearly can't be true. And so you understand God as beneath essentially those laws of reason, which in this is per West Westfall's point, you know, you you've placed him beneath what you've exalted in terms of your definition of reason. Um, and then Hegel, the same thing, although differently, but same concept of universality mm -hmm. applies. And then God is kind of folded into that. So essentially reason is God and reason is this kind of secular thing. Um, and then it kind of legitimates or creates space for God to exist uh, only insofar as God's existence corresponds with these, this particular understanding of reason. Absolutely. So then Kierkegaard really comes and, and flips that on its head too. And you draw a lot from his authorship in your book. And I'm wondering if you could talk about a couple of specific um, insights that are helpful in terms of kind of shifting that paradigm. Yeah, probably one of the most concrete things there is this uh, difference Kierkegaard uh, elucidates between the genius and the apostle, which for me took on sort of like these archetypes that of of the the different kinds of apologists that that I want wanted to to articulate, and, and I think it's true to Kierkegaard as well. Although if it's not, then uh, if if somebody has got a more nuanced reading of those things in Kierkegaard, then they can have it. It still suits my purpose. <laughs> I think I'm right and I can defend it. But um, yeah, so for Kierkegaard, he, said, he talks about the difference between a genius and apostle. And a genius is the hero of modernity. And it, it's, the, it's the only way to get authority. And, and this is what's really crucial. And I think many people miss uh, what Kierkegaard is really doing when they read him through the lens of modernity because they read him solely through the lens of epistemology. Uh, and modern epistemology in particular, and they they see him operating within the modern paradigm. And I really do believe that that if you have that reading of Kierkegaard, you're going to miss some of the more important things about him and the, and the real subtle ways that he's challenging the entire modern paradigm, which is also, and this is a little footnote, but um, it, I think that's also how you have to understand his quite complicated political theology which is nascent, it's not developed, but um, he has 
you know, some things that appear to us to be quite strange often when he defends the monarchy and stuff like that. But anyways, so um, he's looking at <clears throat> at the situation, basically says the only the only thing left in town uh, is to, to for authority is is reason. And so the genius has to be the place where you get reason. And I think he's drawing on Hegel and the whole dialectic of, for example, the master servant or bond servant, um, however you want to understand that word. Um, and and so the genius is someone who gets ahead of the curve. They're more talented. They have they have more insight and more smarts than the rest of us. And they become an expert. And so we rely on them. But the problem is that the, the genius only sets sort of this new bar and pretty soon everyone else catches up to them. So they always have to be running ahead and their authority is always in question. Um, and so their their need is to establish kind of epistemic dominance, right? They have to establish that they are the, the, the really smart ones in the group and that they get what nobody else does. Um, and it creates that kind of dynamic. Whereas the apostle comes in and it doesn't matter if the apostles are a clever person or not. Um, for example, St. Paul or the Apostle Paul was quite clearly very well trained and very intelligent. Um, but the basis on which Paul uh, establishes his warrant for his message is never his own uh, cleverness, his, his own genius. He hasn't discovered anything. He's only giving you the word of the Lord. And so there's a, there's a real qualitative difference in, in the message between the genius and the apostle and the way that it's delivered because the, the, the genius is not, sorry, the apostle is not giving you something that is the product of his own cleverness. That is, you know, it, it might not even be anything new to anyone. Um, it's just, it's authoritative, not because of the, the, the apostle, person it's because of the, the 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 lord who has given him that word that is passed on so i i've been in ministry you know i did the academic stuff and i'm in ministry right now and play with the academic world just a bit just dip my toe in every once in a while with podcasts like this but uh i in ministry i just recognize there's a tension between you know adopting this epistemic paradigm of postmodern all that kind of different stuff and being missional in the sense where we're stepping into the construction to speak truth or, or bring revelation to that that we know and then hopefully pulling people out of it and i've also heard uh, apologetics uh, or every christian apologist i've heard that i think is legitimate has been doing good work has always said we're we're here to remove the roadblocks that get in the get in the way of people's understanding so the spirit can work which is you know it sounds really arrogant the way I said it there, you know, but at the same time, they're, they're calling is specifically to step in and remove those things that are getting in the way and then freeing people up, like you guys are saying, the epistemic battle of the two, for them to be able to uh, have answers to those hard questions that won't get in the way of letting the spirit, being open to the spirit working in their hearts. And so... My question would be like, what's the, how do you hold the tension? How do you play with the tension between stepping into the postmodern mindset and then getting lost in there? Is it compromise? Is it missional? Uh, what's your view on that? That's a, that's a good question. Um, first of all, it, it kind of depends on what we mean by postmodern. Um, and 
as I want to understand postmodern, it's not a, a set of thinkers who get to define it, and it's not a it's not a set of theses or anything like that. It's it's a little more complicated. And in fact, I think in the book uh, that we're talking about, the end of apologetics, um, I basically just say it it's the attempt to to think, and in this case, particularly about God in a way that's after modern, like that has been through modernity and understands that itself as modern, um, which means that we understand its contingency. Because um, one of the, the things about modernity, uh, and as again, Charles Taylor said, once you're embedded in a modern social imaginary, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine that things could be any different. Um, and so just beginning to imagine that things could be different is, is an important thing for me. Um, and so like, I want I like to push back against the, the, the claims, I guess, of some apologists who say, well, I'm just trying to remove barriers to belief because I think that's a real naive and modern understanding of, of what philosophers call doxastic formation, um, as, as if, which is basically the process of coming to a belief. Um, and the, the problem is the, it's assuming that, that the key ingredient in, in belief formation is, is intellectual. So I, you know, that arguments exist in this neutral space that we call mind, that we can all participate in together and that it's all neutral. And, and then uh, there are some intellectual barriers and if we can just remove them, that's the real problem. But the real problem for believing Christianity, if you follow the New Testament, at least, um, is actually not intellectual at all. Um, and then what we like to do is throw up intellectual barriers uh, to, to say, this, this is the problem. I just don't get this yet. Um, again, to quote Kierkegaard from uh, for self-examination, um, he says, you know, the, the, the problem with the scriptures is not that they're difficult to understand. The problem is that they're too easy to understand and very difficult to do. And so people like to create all kinds of problems to say, oh, well, I don't quite understand yet. Um, I can't quite do it because I don't understand what's being asked of me. Um, and so I, I just don't think the primary problem is intellectual in most cases. Now, I think that in, the intellect is definitely part of the spiritual and it's part of the problem and, and engaging people in intellectual conversation is incredibly important. Um, and so I don't want to just simply diminish that. I, I think that there are huge uh, barriers to belief that are coming out of the milieu in which we live, um, which is this modern social imaginary. And those have to be engaged with all the intellectual honesty and, and complexity that is demanded. Um, so I don't want to diminish that. Uh, but having someone come in and give you some arguments about why evolution is, is completely ludicrous is not going to do that. It's actually going to create, I think, a spiritual type of formation of a certain type of person that is not actually a Christian type of person and a Christian type of formation. Because that's not the key ingredient. In, in a healthy Christian spirituality, or it's not the only primary ingredient. I appreciated you mentioned for self-examination. I was actually thinking about the quote in that book where he says, 
Uh, the worst thing that you could do to doubt is to feed it with reasons because doubt feasts off of reasons yeah. and that and reasons being defined as like, here's one more piece of evidence to stack or here's one more rational argument. But that's actually what it eats in order to thrive and in order to live. So if you keep feeding it, it's just going to keep festering. So you're going to be in these cycles of perpetual doubt. And that doesn't mean that you don't have reasons for your belief or you don't think through with intellectual honesty, these different things, as you were saying, but it does mean that you recognize, and this is back to that conversation about, do we remove intellectual obstacles so that people can then believe? And, and there's this assumption that if I remove all of these things and then stack the evidence, then like, eventually I'm just going to sort of fall into belief. <laughs> like I'll just clear the the gap mm -hmm. and then, and then it'll happen. And the Holy spirit will then work after I've done all this clearing away and then I'll believe. Right. Um, but I, but I think about um, from concluding unscientific postscript with Climacus really talking about how that's actually the infinite leap. Like you can't establish, you know, this, uh, a real personal faith. Um, you can't fall into real personal faith by using an objective, you know, these uh, neutral, um, uh, what was the other word? Sorry, I'm like losing it. Universal. <laughs> Universal, objective, neutral arguments that are then going to like throw you into this vibrant personal faith. It just doesn't work. There, there's, a, there's a chasm between that that you don't clear that way. Um, so I, I, and I know that you mentioned talking about shifting from this sort of um, epistemic justification of belief towards a more hermeneutical approach. Can you explain a little bit more? What does that look like? And how, how does rationality still play a role in that? But how is it just recast in a way that will actually produce healthier Christians? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question. And it, I think, kind of speaks right to the center of what I'm trying to do. Um, and Kierkegaard says it really e simply, and I remember reading this as an undergraduate and just trying to figure out what the hell he's talking about. And so um, uh, actually, in a lot of ways, that is probably the, my, you know, the, my journey has been trying to figure out what he's talking about. And he talks about uh, the what and the how, um, which is just a really simple way. And, and his, his, his flat out assertion is that uh, when you have, when, when you, when you focus on the what, you lose the how. So when you focus on the what of something and th then the how just becomes unimportant. But there is a how, he says, there is a sub, uh, you know, a way of subjectivity that can include the how that when you, when you scrupulously render it is the words that he uses in the journals and papers, uh, then the what is also included in it. Um, and so there is, Making this shift is is all about focusing on, I guess, the things that I would say are, are most important, uh, which would not be uh, this objective thing that may or may not have a relationship to me, but rather my relationship to being in the truth. And, and so what my relationship to it is. And, and I mean, and this is where I think it's entirely appropriate that Kierkegaard also at times can be looked at as the father of modern psychology as well, um, because he understands very early on uh, in terms of how modernity is is rethinking the subject that um, 
there are all kinds of psychological malaises that we suffer from and that we are prone fundamentally to self-deception. So he's saying this stuff way before Freud. Um, and he's understanding even before Nietzsche, because he's about 13 years older than Nietzsche and he's writing before Nietzsche. Um, and he's understanding that, that, that there, there isn't this objective neutral reason that's at work uh, within us, but we're constantly self-deceiving. Um, and so the shift that has to happen then has to, to be one that, that focuses on uh, addressing those deeper problems that we have that are uh, psychological and spiritual uh, that, and, and maybe there should be a hyphen there. Um, and so that's why Kierkegaard talks about repentance all the time and things like that. Okay. So what you're saying is that uh, when you focus on the what of Christianity, and, and in my mind, I think about that as very ocular, uh, you know, mm -hmm. this is a statement, a proposition that I am, I'm looking at, or I'm theorizing about, and that I kind of have control over and approach. Um, and shifting that to the how, and that's not to say that, oh, we don't believe in objectivity anymore. We're just going to fall into subjective experience and personal preference and things like that. The how does contain content, very clear content, right? But it's just received differently and indwelt differently. And that's what you mean by hermeneutics. So mm -hmm. what does it mean to indwell this differently as Christians? And how do you see that as faithful to Christian witness. Yeah. I mean, it, it all, I guess, comes down to what you think the essentially Christian is. And unfortunately, the, the idea that you get from many apologists, Christian apologists, is that the essentially Christian is a list of doctrinal propositions. And there are some that are core and some that are peripheral, and we, they, they'll often distinguish between different levels of belief. And so we can argue about these ones, we can agree to disagree about these other ones, but these ones here in the center, and, and that's the whole um, approach. And the, the problem with that is that it, it has not yet at all talked about the way in which I'm relating to any of those propositions, um, and that it, it has... I see propositions as things that come after faith. In fact, quite a long ways after. Um, and if you look at any of the biblical models, um, they're presented with Yahweh or with Jesus and they follow and then they figure out what exactly it is that's going on to them, right? Um, and so, like, and that even goes down to the Greek word that is for faith or belief, uh, which has an affective dimension to it that we just simply don't have in our, that we've lost in our concept of belief or even faith, which is all about um, trust. Uh, and so um, I, I actually at this point think that we should stop translating pistis, which is the word, as belief, and we should just start translating it as trust. Uh, and only in those contexts where you cannot uh, translate it as trust with any meaning um, you then will be forced to use belief, but it should be the default translation unless you have to uh, use the word belief. <laughs> That's my own personal feeling, just because of the way we've emptied that word of anything like uh, 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 existential commitment or anything like that. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense if you switch, you know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved or trust 
the Lord Jesus Christ. You trust exactly. in the Lord. Like that's a, a whole person leaning. And I've staked my yeah. life on this, right? Exactly. I, I'm not just mentally assented to, oh yeah, Jesus is the son of God, right? Uh, that's and a different posture. And it's impossible to understand trust apart from uh, definite ways of being in the world, right? So you can't say, uh, uh, I don't know, this is a stupid example, that you're going to walk across a plank between two, a chasm over a chasm and say, well, I trust it if you're not actually willing to walk across it. Like, you can't say I trust it unless you're using it, right? Um, whereas we could say, oh, I believe it's safe. Well, no, I'm trusting that it's safe. I'm walking across it. That's something different, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so that that to me is is a critical part of of what Kierkegaard is talking about as well. So when when it comes to practice, you're talking about um, like when we, we talk about these things in the spiritual formation world, we talk about moral formation that has that's just based on cognitive knowledge of things and. You have your doctrine and, and you're morally formed by the fact that you're buying that hook, line, and sinker, but there's no actual struggle. There's no actually adoption of it, um, all those kind of different things. So is that kind of similar to what you're talking about with the, with the doctrine that they hold and know and then act accordingly, but there's no real substance to that action and that substance not being worship and not being living out what they're supposed to be doing? Absolutely. Uh, I, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I'm becoming increasingly convinced of and that I actually have in mind as a project, we'll see if it ever comes to bear, is, is drawing out um, some of Pierre Adot's insights about uh, ancient philosophy in particular and, and Kierkegaard's ideas of, about philosophy. Um, because what you get from Pierre Adot when you... Uh, if you read him, he's a French thinker. That's H-A-D-O-T for the listeners who might not understand how French is pronounced and written. Um, he he's, he oh, was Pierre an ancient... Hadot, right? Is that weird? Yeah, Hadot. <laughs> Pierre Hadot. <laughs> uh, but he, he points out that we've consistently misread ancient philosophers because we read them like they're modern philosophers, but they're not, because for them, philosophy was actually a way of life. It involved conversion. They had to go live in communities. You didn't check into Plato's academy, stay for four years, become a master of philosophy, get your BA, and then head out and get married with, you know, a, a wife and a dog and picket fence and 2.4 kids. Like, that's just not what happened. Like, you went there and you stayed. That's what it, you let you lived a philosopher's life because it was a way of living. You were pursuing uh, wisdom. And so you lived that way. And and uh, a really strong case can be made that that's exactly how uh, particularly St. Paul was understanding um, his the, the kinds of communities that he was he was uh, creating or, or creating founding as churches. Um, that they were entering into this 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 way of pursuing truth and wisdom that was was involving an entire way of life. So that when he says be transformed by the renewing of your minds, he's not saying make sure that you have the correct doctrinal state. Um, and when he talks about how they came to learn the truth, he talks about putting off the old self with its evil desires and putting on the new self. Um, that's how they came to know the truth. 
which is really interesting because he's talking about sets of practices that they, they, they transferred from. They converted from these ways, these practices, to these other ways, these other practices. Um, and that the intellectual stuff came along with it. And it's not unimportant at all. But the problem seems to be that you can't get to those things as they really are because they will be concepts devoid of actual proper content unless they have the subjective appropriation uh, that come through the way of living that gives them the context in which they actually make sense. I was like, I'm excited about this. You're steering right into my lane because I did some of those stuff for my um, my thesis and spiritual practice and spiritual disciplines are a big part of what I love and my aspect of ministry and things like that, especially the aspect of how um, we talked about those things had to take place in community and then they get mm -hmm. refined and then as they're refined, they're proven, but it's like the cyclical proof experience, proof experience that no matter how much, you know, walking in, it doesn't become real until you've walked through. Absolutely. And one of the things that, little sort of taglines that I say in, in the book is it takes a community to tell the truth. Um, I, and there's, I absolutely believe, like, I, I don't think I can announce the truth on my own. And if some of the anti-vaxxers that I know and I'm related to are <laughs> any, any proof, <laughs> I think they prove that <laughs> they think they're going to do it all by themselves and they're not. <laughs> Yeah, the community piece is is really important in your book, but I think is also what's unique about it as well, because if you think about um, if apologetics or if winning someone for the faith simply involves getting them to intellectually say uncle, I say all the time, right? Um, you don't actually have to be part of the community. Like the church has absolutely nothing to do with that. You can be a full believer. You could be a Christian insofar as you believe X, Y, and Z, these statements cognitively, and, and you could never darken the, the doors of a church for your entire life. Or it you recognize that maybe the church is this thing that you should do. It's something that you're called to do now that you're a Christian, but it doesn't really have anything. It's, it's like a, an amenity, if anything. Um, Commodity. It's a commodity. Exactly. And going back to the genius and the apostle, you, you see that very much it, there as well. Like the genius is that person who discovers truth within the confines of what he can find within the imminent frame and his rational frameworks. Right. I'm, I'm stumbling upon it and then bam, I've supposedly found it. Right. But, but, you know, Kierkegaard is going to say you can never actually do that because you can't get outside of the eminence of your own frame. You have to have an inbreaking or a rupture from the outside, which is invitational and invites you and you don't fully understand it. You're just it's like Jesus saying, follow me. And as you said, like they follow and then they come to understand. But there's this aspect of community from the very beginning um, that you don't see in, in typical modern apologetics conversations. Yeah, and it has everything to do with um, the fact that they conceive of the essentially Christian as something that doesn't require these other things as critical components, which is why I really get uh, hung up on Kierkegaard's category of edification um, in the book or upbuilding, um, because that to me is a core piece in that shift that you were talking about earlier. As we shift, you know, what are the goals of, of an apologetic discourse? Um, it seems to be that 
rational domination, if you want to call it that, or maybe a more friendly version of that might be winning them onto my side is what the goal is. Um, but I think that's like an absolutely false goal from the standpoint of the gospel. Um, Jesus is all about the edification of people. He's all about winning them to themselves, bringing them to full, uh, I can only think of the Danish word for some reason right now, um, uh, eternal blessedness. Sally Hill is what I was going <laughs> to refer to, right? Like this, this, he's trying to bring them to salvation, which is not this this sort of abstract state that they'll be in at some point. He's trying to bring them fully to themselves so they can be have that abundant life. And he that's what he wants desperately for all people. That's what the good news is, that that's available. Um, and so that's why, I, again, I switched to the categories of ed truth as edification and and apologetics as witness that comes in the form of confession and attestation um, as opposed to argumentation. And uh, again, don't get me wrong. I think, especially someone who's been trained in philosophy, I, I get the need for and, and can appreciate the value of rigorous argumentation, intellectual engagement. But as the primary mode by which we're going to uh, uh, announce the gospel, it cannot be that in in the the form that that we do that in modernity. Notice it's very different. And this is what a lot of apologists do. Well, Paul goes into the synagogues and he argues it's like he's not doing what you're doing. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you can sit down with an atheist who believes the Bible uh, and the, in the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, then maybe you can say you're doing that. But <laughs> that's not what he was doing. And let's just take off the table right now the whole, uh, you know, Second Peter reference to uh, apologia, right? Let's just not even go there. <laughs> I think what you brought up as a key thing, though, the relational aspect of, right, and again goes back to that, because I think when we, when I think of an apologist, I think of somebody standing up, delivering a lecture, combating with somebody in like a presidential-ish type debate, you know, yeah. like, uh, but the aspect of what we're doing is relational. And if we can't even meet the people where they're at, you know, relationally and walk through that with them, then there's no point in trying to uh, convince them intellectually of something that that they can't get to anywhere or they don't want to get to because of doubt or because of fear or like you're saying, yep. all these underlying pastoral causes that we can see, but only in relationship as we walk through life with them. Yeah. And, and see part of the problem with modern apologetics is that it's not treating the root causes of anything and it's not converting people to the root of Christianity. Um, so in the end you have to go, well, what's happening? And then we wonder why there are so many people who leave the faith or leave the church or whatever else. They didn't sign up for the actual thing. So maybe they're not up for the real thing. I mean, or maybe it's not, maybe once it loses uh, that commodity loses the thing that they came to, that they bought it for, it, it's just no longer worth it to them. Yeah, and I think that this shift is important, even in terms of our current context, as far as what types of questions people are asking of Christianity right now. Mm -hmm. um, because, and Westfall said this <laughs> 15 years ago, you know, like everything else, right? But 
Um, you have the atheists of skepticism. Like I don't have enough proof in the resurrection or, you know, for God's existence. Um, but those have really by and large fallen by the wayside. Um, now yeah. you have more of the atheists of suspicion or people who are using, you know, with, with this, the hermeneutics of suspicion to say, is Christianity ethical? Is it just, is it a white man's religion? Is, does mm -hmm. it oppress women? Um, does it actually transform communities or does it just create like an ideological structure hierarchy over communities? Like these are more pressing questions than can you give me a cosmological argument for the existence yeah, of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so in that case, this, this hermeneutical turn to witness uh, seems like it's actually really the best thing for the time in which we find ourselves as well, strategy-wise. And that's part of what I was saying as well. I, um, in the beginning of the book, I, I just talk about this outdated uh, mode or vocabulary that, that just doesn't work in sort of Rorty's fashion, right? Like there just needs to be a, a new understanding, a new way of talking and thinking about this. Um, because the way to, to address, uh, you know, somebody, uh, who has been an oppressed people group, pick one of them, um, who, ha who has been legitimately oppressed by Christianity. The way, the way to ad address them with the good news cannot be to dig in and defend the very structural system that oppressed them. It just cannot be. They will not hear the good news as good news in that context. Um, and so, the way to start is with repentance um, and, and acknowledgement that the things that happen to them are real and that are bad and are actually against the gospel. And only in that kind of context can they ever hear the good news that, that actually Christ is always on their side, that Christ is always already for them. Um, and that kind of confession, which there I'm using both the sense of to tell what's true for me, but also to tell what's true about me, that I've been participating in a system that has been oppressive and to you or whomever, um, is, is the way of truth. That's how truth is in the world, which is also why it's linked to suffering. Which is the actual context of 1 Peter 3.15. Yeah, absolutely. Which we take it completely out of context when we start saying you're ready for a fight get ready for a fight it's not like as you live in this where you're at suffering show who yeah. you are show who you are in christ by how and you be able to be able to point them to the right place yeah as opposed to that begin yeah i don't <laughs> even know i don't even know how that makes sense to people anymore but when we've done Bible studies on First Peter, you know, and walk through it, people are shocked to hear like, oh, this is the context of what's happening here. Like I always yeah. heard, heard this really out of context. I heard I heard this as like a, there, there, there's fighting words. Get ready, you know, like get ready. Yeah, get yeah. ready. So it's interesting. Exactly, yeah. exactly the opposite. Yep. Well, Dr. Penner, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. Just really appreciate all of your uh, insights and thoughts about uh, how to think about the whole enterprise of apologetics in a much more uh, relational and communal and confessional way. And just uh, really, really appreciate you kicking off this apologetics series with us. Well, 
it has honestly been a, a pleasure and an honor to be invited and to be with you guys. I appreciate it very much.